You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. While we anxiously wait for a vaccine and antiviral medications to treat the coronavirus, it's worth remembering that not all safeguards against COVID require medical breakthroughs. Let me put it this way. If you ever wanted to hear a persuasive argument for hitting the snooze button on your bedside alarm early in the morning, well, I'll just keep listening to this episode. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, find out why some of your first lines of defense against this pandemic work as well as they do, and why the qualities of one of them also make going without hugs these days so hard. It's soap skin, sleep. We're all trying to wash our hands of this virus almost more times than we can count. Well, as I lather up for the 200th time today, wondering whether my skin is going to peel off like a molting snake. Okay, I'm going to grab a towel here, kind of dry off. Well, I guess the good thing is I'm not back in ancient Samaria trying to come clean. I'm referring to that time long, long ago when it seems the recipe for soap was discovered. We can tell because it shows up on this ancient Akkadian tablet. It's around 4,500-year-old tablet. The first time soap is written about is in conjunction with manufacturing wool, probably because wool is covered with lanolin, which is a fat, and the soap helps remove that lanolin. So it's thousands of years ago, and I'm washing away lanolin from this sheep's wool using newly invented soap. And frankly, it isn't easy. If you want to know what this early soap was like, well, scrub from your mind that image of a fresh-smelling bar of ivory nestled in a ceramic dish. The formula for soap is relatively straightforward. It's really just animal fat, and it's lye, which can be found in the ashes of a fire. Fat and lye. Yeah, well, it sounds like something I'd wrap up and put in the trash, not lather onto my face. (laughs) Exactly. But surprisingly, the recipe for soap hasn't changed all that much over the years. It's still a mixture of fat or oil and an alkali or basic salt. So soap does one very simple thing in that it enables fats and waters to coexist. All right, so the soap molecule is kind of asymmetric. It has two ends. One end binds with water, and the other end binds with grease or dirt, fats. The fat-loving side bonds with the offending dirt, and the alkali side bonds with the water. So this combination can be washed down the drain. In early times, the salt or alkali was provided by ash. And ash is not only an alkali, it is the first. The word alkali is derived from the Arabic for ash. Well, there would have been a lot of that around in ancient times, and so the creation of soap was likely not a unique event. It was probably accidentally discovered many times in ancient history when people would clean greasy plates with the ash and and realized it would clean a plate a little bit better that way. Author Cody Cassidy describes the discovery of soap in a book devoted to significant firsts that don't usually make it into historical accounts, mainly because most of the discoverers are unknown and consequently anonymous. The title, Who Ate the First Oyster? The Extraordinary People Behind the Greatest Firsts in History, also includes who told and and, and what was the first joke. 
And we'll hear that because we do need levity these days. Not as much as we need soap, though. It's our first line of defense against the coronavirus. The coronavirus is surrounded by um, a lipid fat shell. And soap actually attacks the outer casing of these viruses and, and rips them apart. So it both removes and destroys them. So who should receive credit for helping us vanquish the virus? Mr. Cassidy's research leads him to believe it was a worker in the Sumerian textile industry. And because that industry was dominated by women, it was probably a woman who invented soap. He names her Nini Sina for the purposes of describing her story and why she'd want to remove that lanolin from wool. It makes it difficult both to spin and to, it's sticky. You can't quite spin it. And you also, you need to dye it. And there are other ways to do this. And so really her invention was probably just a slight improvement on the manufacture of wool, which is funny because it's really one of the greatest medical discoveries we've ever had, and as we're now learning. Yeah, but I I doubt that she knew about the medical benefits. I mean, you know, unless she had uh, super duper eyeballs, she couldn't see microbes. Nobody knew about microbes. I mean, what kept soap going? Was it just its use for these kind of practical things? I mean, when did people uh, start to notice that fewer people were getting sick? They really didn't notice that until... uh, Louise Pasteur discovered microorganisms and their lethal effects. But fortunately, soap has some other benefits that kept it in use, mainly uh, smell. It, it helps people not smell quite so bad. So there were people like the ancient Egyptians used quite a bit of soap. But yeah, it had really little use as a medicine or a medical product until quite recently. Can you describe what their soap would have looked like? I mean, it wouldn't have been a, a bar with ivory stamped on it. But <laughs> Not quite. This is pretty impure soap. It's up until even medieval times, they would just sort of have a um, ash in a bag, like a tea bag, and you could dip it and combine it with grease and it makes a, an impure but effective soap. So if I were washing my hands with this ancient variety of soap, would I have to scrub a lot harder? Would I have to, you know, wash my hands 200 times a day? Or Yeah, it, it probably wouldn't be as, as effective as modern varieties. It probably wasn't quite as pure and, and you might get ash on your hand too. But it, it still would remove grease and destroy bacteria and, and some viruses. Well, you write that uh, soap has probably saved many more lives than penicillin. Uh, I I guess there isn't an actual tally for the number of lives saved by soap. But I mean, is that a reasonable hypothesis? Is that something you would dare to say at a dinner party? I I, I certainly heard that from a few experts. It's hard to put a number on how many lives soap has saved exactly. But it's certainly saved many, many lives. And it's been in use for so long that that it's a reasonable assumption. Cody, why is it that uh, you decided to write this book. I mean, there there are plenty of books about inventors or discoveries. I mean, you know, there are entire books about Tesla and Tesla, you know, invented the AC induction motor, whatever. So why why is it that you wanted to write a book about these things that are, you know, they're not in general written down anywhere. It's a it's a lot of guessing. That's sort of why I was interested in it, because it's sort of you have to build a case. There, there aren't any written records. There, there is no name written anywhere. So you have to look in different areas of different fields of science to answer these questions. I think maybe my favorite example of that is the first clothing. Obviously, clothing would degrade long before we were able to find it. But by looking at the genetics of body lice, which live on clothing, Geneticists have been able to determine the exact time period in which they began to do so, and and therefore we have a timing for the invention of clothing. Well, Cody, let's talk about another first, which may have some greater relevance now because people seem to be drinking a lot more alcohol these days for obvious reasons, and that includes beer. And that's uh, one of the subjects you investigated. Uh, How do you know about the invention of beer? I mean, did somebody write it down? I mean, yeah, the invention of beer or the discovery of beer was really timed toward uh, the oldest evidence of bread, which comes from around 16,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. And uh, bread leaves a little bit more of a crumb than beer that you can't, there aren't any evidence of beer, but it's so inevitable that someone who was making bread would stumble on beer because it's really just sort of rotten bread. It's a fermented bread with a little bit of water that they think that was around the same time. The first beer was brewed about 16,000 years ago, but she was a Natufian hunter-gatherer living in the Middle East. I call her Osiris. These are some of the first people to really gather wheat and rye seeds because the wild versions of these were actually pretty rare and difficult to gather. So she wouldn't have done it very often. But when she did, they would make a sort of granola or a watery gruel. And she simply left it out for a day in the sun and it would ferment 
And so she was probably the first person who had the courage to try this fermented mistake. So she drank it. Uh, do you think she drank it a second time because it was all there was to drink or because it had some effect on her? Certainly she would have recognized the taste of alcohol and enjoyed it just like most people it, because alcohol has been with us for quite some time for as long as we've been around when we started eating fermented fruits. We developed a taste for this. This is even before Homo sapiens evolved. But the difference between that and beer is that cereals can be stored and they can be harvested in mass. And then of course, they're also a food. And so that began farming. Some archaeologists think that the discovery of beer is what tripped off hunter-gatherers to begin intensively gathering wheat. Are you trying to tell me that civilization as we know it owes its existence to beer? Yes, there's some research papers that are titled very similar to that. And it may very well. The, it's hard to explain why these Neftufian hunter-gatherers would have gathered these really difficult wheat seeds if they were interested in, in a flatbread. But it's a little bit easier to explain if they were interested in beer. One thing I noticed, Cody, is that many of the people you describe as uh, the first to do something were women. It sounds like mother is the mother of invention. Uh, yes, I think the first invention that we can see uh, made, and this I'm differentiating between tool and invention. We were certainly sharpening rocks long before this, but nearly three million years ago, a young mother, this is just after our ancestors began walking upright. Uh, she was an Australopithecine. She uh, was covered in fur and, and still slept in tree nests. So she was sort of halfway between chimpanzee and human. But as we began walking upright, she had to carry her baby. And she had to carry for such a long time that archaeologists suspect there isn't really any way she would have been able to do so without inventing a way to tie the baby onto her. And this actually had a, a, lot, a cascading series of effects. Sort of the first invention, though, is, according to you, very likely to have been a sling to hold your baby. Yes, it's the first invention that we can see in the archaeological record, and you can buy it online today. Well, Lincoln said that in times like this, if I did not laugh, I think I should die. A lot of us are uh, trying to laugh, and uh, you address the question of uh, the first joke. Kind of interested in that, because presumably we don't know when the first joke was, was made. Uh, what, what's the answer here? Well, this is the first written joke, and we found it from this old Akkadian tablet. But I'll, I'll skip to the punchline, because it isn't very funny. Uh, <laughs> the joke goes, when the lion came into the sheep's pen, the guard dog put on his best leash. I'm trying to picture this in a comedy club. When the lion came into the sheep pen, the guard dog put on his best leash. Sounds like a real a real thigh slapper. How old is that again? It's 4,000 years old. This is It was written uh, on an, an Akkadian tablet. A modern retelling might be uh, when the shark fin appeared in the water, the lifeguard remembered it was his lunch break. It's sort of like a, a joke on the dereliction of one's duty. Even though it isn't, it isn't funny, it's one of the first written sentences that isn't uh, to do with accounting. Writing had been around long before this, but it would always been in the context of taxes and, and separating what was whose and who owed who what. So this is, uh, even though it's not funny, it's, it's much funnier than everything that came before it. <laughs> I see. In the land of no jokes, even a bad joke is king. You know, the title of your book, Cody, is uh, Who Ate the First Oyster? And I actually never wondered much about that, but it's actually a, a good question with a very subtle answer. Yeah, the first eaten shellfish, were they're 164,000 years old and they were found on the southern coast of South Africa. There were so many oysters there that archaeologists believe they learned how to efficiently gather these oysters, which means because oysters are spend most of the time underwater, they're only exposed at the lowest tides. And it was certainly a woman who first tried it. I named her Oyster Gal for the purposes of the book. There were so many oysters there that she didn't live on the coast. She must have learned when to travel to the coast to grab her oysters. And the only way to really do that is to connect the tides, the full and the new moon, with the uh, movement of the super low tides. So she has to wait until it's full moon, I think, so that the moon is on one side of the earth and the sun is on the other side of the earth. And then you get the super low tides that reveal the oysters. Exactly. And it's, it's a pretty non-obvious discovery. I'm not sure I would have made it had I been there and had I not been told. So it's, it's pretty impressive. So she was not only bold, she was, I think, a pretty excellent astronomer. Finally, Cody, I, you know, today we're waiting for the invention of a vaccine against this pandemic. And we'll know who did it. They'll, you know, they'll get credit. Uh, they, they might even get a patent. Who knows? Um, does that matter? I mean, is it, you know... How important is it that today we can document exactly how these things happen? 
I think one thing looking through ancient history is, and these different inventors is that certainly nobody ever does anything on their own. It's there's sort of an accumulation of discoveries around what they accomplished. And that's the case in, in nearly everything in this book and, and what I looked at and will, will certainly be the case going forward. But I think there's some value in celebrating the first person to cross a barrier, the first person to accomplish something is worth celebrating. Cody Cassidy, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Cody Cassidy is the author of Who Ate the First Oyster? The Extraordinary People Behind the Greatest First in History. I'm amused by the first joke. I mean, I wasn't that amused by the first joke. And to be clear, that was the first joke that was written down. People had probably been telling jokes for much longer than they had been writing them down and doing stand-up. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, for the majority of the 300,000-year history of Homo sapiens, they couldn't write anything down. But I have to agree with you, that joke would not play well in a comedy club today. I I don't think you'd get asked back. You would not be the headliner. (laughs) Well, now we know where soap came from, and you are familiar with using it, but even though you think you know how to wash your hands after doing it a zillion times a day during this pandemic, the World Health Organization guidelines for hand washing might include some tricks you haven't yet incorporated. Sarah Derwin demonstrated the guidelines for us in the early days of the pandemic, but they bear repeating. So here it is again. We're going to wash our hands of it on radio. So turn on the faucet, wet your hands. Then get enough soap in your hands that you can produce a nice lather. Put your palms together and really get in there. Go clockwise and counterclockwise. Okay, so hands together, palms together. I'm doing it although my hands are dry. Okay, got it. Right, right. Then flip one hand over so you're looking at the top of your hand. Put your palm on top of it and really get the top of your hand soapy and foamy. So once you've done that, take your hands apart, put your palms together, interlace your fingers, and really start to get the sides of your fingers all soapy. That is a lot of foam right now. <laughs> it really is. I am effective. Make the letter C with your hands. Turn that so the C is actually intertwined. And I know this sounds complicated, but it really will be obvious on the video. So once you make the C's, Rub the tops of your fingers against your palms on both hands and really get in there. So you're working the high C's there. That's right, the high C's and the low C's. Grab the thumb on one hand and basically try and almost twist the thumb off of your hand. Switch thumbs. And the last step you want to do is to take the fingertips of one hand and put them on the palm of the other and rub. And get that area of your hand that meets your wrist because that often is overlooked. So once you're done with that, you have to rinse off. So don't touch the faucet with your nice clean hands. Hit it with your elbow or your wrist. Rinse off nicely. And this is something that we need to do repeatedly whenever we touch something new? Yes, whenever you touch something new, something dirty, something in the public, you touch your face, basically wash your hands all day long. All right, Sarah, thanks. Wash our hands often. Do not touch your face. And there will be a video to Sarah's demonstration on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Sarah, thank you so much. No problem. We said that soap is our first line of defense during this pandemic, but that's not entirely accurate. The essential first line of defense is somewhat complicated because it both protects us against the disease and helps transmit it. The landscape on the surface of the skin is like a jungle, secreting different kinds of molecules, many of which have antimicrobial activity. Find out how your body's largest organ fights off pathogens and its role in making it so hard to go without hugs or other kinds of physical touch these days. It's Soap, Skin, Sleep on Big Picture Science. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com.
The novel coronavirus is just that, novel, which is to say new in the sense that it hadn't been identified before. And it's also highly infectious. That's why it's so important to enforce strict isolation for patients with severe cases of COVID-19. That means hospital staff have the difficult job of gently telling family members that they're not allowed at the bedside of a loved one who is sick or dying of the disease. The isolation policy is there to protect everyone, of course, but it can feel cruel when friends and family plead with caregivers, just let me hold her hand. But the need for physical touch isn't limited to crises. Many of us are feeling the ache for physical contact these days. A term has even popped up to capture it, skin hunger. The reassurance of physical touch is another casualty of this virus. Pennsylvania State University anthropologist Nina Jablonski says your skin is on the front lines of this pandemic in another way. It's also working to protect you. The author of Skin, A Natural History, says that those layers of epidermis, dermis, and hypodermis remain sensitive, supple, and resilient despite countless hand washings. Skin is remarkably durable. And so when we wash it, especially when we wash it gently, it's literally no skin off of any surface. I mean, we we lose a few skin cells, but the function of the skin is retained because the skin is naturally regenerating all of the time. So when we're in good health, there's no problem with the skin actually being a very, very effective barrier for us. I heard skin described as being waterproof. And at first I was taken aback by that. And I thought, well, it is waterproof, isn't it? It keeps the water from (laughs) getting inside our body. (laughs) It is a remarkably effective sort of natural raincoat because there are natural (laughs) lipids in the skin. Plus, it's a very tight physical barrier. So it, it is remarkably good only when we submerge the skin for long periods of time. If you've ever had a soak in a bathtub for a long period of time, and sometimes the skin, especially on your hands and feet, becomes sort of pruney, then the skin has actually absorbed water, the upper layers. But most of the time, all of the water runs off. It's just a remarkable surface. Now, our skin is one of the first lines of defense in fighting infection, which suggests that even in the absence of soap and water, it is winning microbial battles of which we are not even aware. What kind of activity is going on in our skin? I mean, if we could shrink down to the size of a skin cell, what might that landscape look like? Well, the landscape on the surface of the skin, on the epidermis, is like a jungle. First of all, there are a variety of different cell types. And then these different cell types are secreting, uh, creating different kinds of molecules, many of which have antimicrobial activity. And so when the skin is intact, it is a remarkable barrier against viruses. The problem is, is that viruses, of course, can still last for a short period of time on the surface of the skin. So the viruses aren't necessarily killed immediately on contact. And especially with something that is as large and complex as the coronavirus, it can sit on the surface of the skin for a period of time and be transmitted to another part of the body or to another person. And that's where all of the enthusiasm about hand washing comes in. Now, I know we know this and people have heard this, but it's still, you know, it's such an amazing fact that it bears repeating. Skin is the largest organ of our body. And can you remind us in what way that's true and how skin fits the definition of organ? Ah, well, the skin is huge. I mean, it covers, you know, more than a square meter on the surface of our bodies. And it is an organ because it contains multiple types of cells that do different functions. And so all of those different cell types work together to make it sort of a working organ. But when you think about skin, it not only affords protection, 
protection against viruses, against moisture, but also against ultraviolet radiation. And skin is a factory. It produces various chemicals, including vitamin D, when the skin is exposed to sunlight. So the skin is really this this hardworking organ. We tend to dismiss it because it's so thin and it's, it's not this sort of bulky, solid organ. Skin is also really important in touch in humans, just as it is in other primates, but we use it especially in our communication with our infants and older people. We can't provide physical reassurance to one another during this pandemic the way that we used to. Uh, What are we losing when we cannot touch one another? Touch is one of the most fundamental ways in which people communicate with one another. It becomes important for us from the moment of birth and it continues until the moment of death. But during that early part of life, it's particularly important. We bond with our mothers and with our caregivers through touch long before we have any verbal skills or can really understand any of the rest of the world that's around us. We can understand the reassurance of touch. Touch causes several different sort of reassurance hormones to be secreted in our bodies, most especially the so-called attachment hormone called oxytocin. So this happens like buckets of it. Uh, When mothers and infants are in contact with one another, Individuals who lack caring touch develop a lot of what used to be called old-fashioned neuroses. We would now call them various kinds of anxiety disorders. Touch is reassuring throughout the lifespan. When someone is sick or ailing or an older person is feeling lonely, we reach out and hold their hand or arm. One of the cruel aspects of this crisis, and there are many, but one is that those who are very sick or dying of COVID-19 and who are in the ICU, for example, are not able to be touched by the people who love them. And those family members are not able to even hold the hand of a, a parent or a spouse or a grandparent who is dying of this disease. Yes, we've become acutely aware of this through many news reports in recent weeks about people dying without the caring touch of a family member. And some of the biggest uh, sort of heroes as healthcare providers have turned out to be those, those nurses and physicians who have come to hold the hands of people who are ill. But even beyond those acute and well-covered cases, there are many cases of people now in social isolation, in nursing home facilities, even in their own apartments, who can't enjoy the touch of their friends and relatives as they used to. And so this is far more widespread than just hospitals and ICUs. It is now an epidemic of its own, the lack of touch and the anxiety caused by that. Nina, what's the relationship between touch and skin? Because not all touch involves skin. So even if I have a gloved hand and I come up and I squeeze your shoulder, our skin never touches, but you will feel better. Yes. And you might feel better. (laughs) Yes, um, because the skin has a variety of different touch receptors. Some of them are for very light touch, but others are for deep touch. And so let's say if you touch someone and you have a glove on your hand and you're touching the shoulder of someone who's wearing clothing, you can still feel in your own hand and they can feel on their shoulder the touch because of those deep pressure receptors that are working. The density and complexity of touch receptors in human skin is simply remarkable. We are really touchy-feely primates. 
So even if we have big thick sweaters on and give each other hugs, it's our skin that is receiving that hug? It is the skin, it's the pressure of the skin-to-skin contact, often the deep pressure over a large surface area. And let's say if you rub someone's back, that gentle rubbing, basically anything that's gentle and repetitive and involves some deep pressure is going to be profoundly soothing to people. Can we talk about glove wearing for a moment? I don't know if you're wearing gloves a lot these days, are you? Well, I do when I go out of the house, and especially, you know, if I'm in the, the store picking up some stuff. or Yeah, I, I definitely do wear gloves. I can't say I like it because, you know, it just makes you feel like you really don't know what's going on because some of the touch receptors can't work. Well, that was my question, though, is why we need touch to interact with things. In fact, we're realizing now that the gloves make it hard to do even simple things like pulling back your hair or reaching into a bag to grab an item. You feel like you're you're blind in some yes. ways. I mean, it's, it's more awkward than you would think a very thin latex glove would make. Yes. Um, and, and I hope that people are developing more of a respect for their own sense of touch because you realize just how exquisitely sensitive some of these receptors are that allow you to sort of finally figure out, you know, oh, is this, you know, is this piece of fruit ripe or not? Or, you know, if this feels cold or warm or helps you find something, you know, in the bottom of a purse, as you mentioned. And also something like a glove has such a different feel as we touch it to other surfaces. So it has less friction in certain ways, more friction in others, so it doesn't work like a hand anymore. And so it's all very, it's all very disarming. And you almost feel like you have someone else's hand that you're working with. (laughs) It is like phantom limb. Yes. It is like a phantom limb or phantom hand sensation. Well, finally, Nina, some say that this pandemic is permanently altering the ways that we work and that working remotely will be the favored new norm. And Am I in the minority in doubting that, that um, when we have the therapeutics and a vaccine for this disease and our fear abates, that we will want to be together physically more than ever? In other words, that instead of reinforcing the value of the virtual world, it's possible that this health crisis and the fact that we've had to be separated will reinforce the value of the physical world. I think there's going to be an interesting evolution from here. We are no doubt at a turning point. And I think in many business contexts, virtual communication will be strongly relied upon for a long period of time, partly because it's highly economical. But for personal communication, I think most of us have recognized the limits of virtual meetings, that we can't get across a lot of subtleties, that we can't feel really intimate with someone or have a really good, spontaneous, multi-way conversation. And so I think in social spheres, people will be very eager to be in one another's company again, to give one another hugs and to have good chats around a table. Well, I think we're all looking forward to that day when we can hug again. Nina Jablonski, thank you so much for speaking with us. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Molly. And give hugs to your loved ones who are close by. Nina Jablonski is an anthropologist at Pennsylvania State University and author of Skin, A Natural History. Next, how to give your body's immune system a boost without getting out of bed. In fact, this boost requires that you stay there. Sleep is the Swiss army knife of health. It really helps in every level of physiology in our brain and in our body. It helps us regulate our mood. Why sleep does a body good, especially during this pandemic, and why our dreams are weirder than usual. It's Soap, Skin, Sleep on Big Picture Science. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the 
must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So how are you sleeping these days? Well, even if you slept like a log before this pandemic, which by the way has always sounded somewhat strange as a metaphor, it means to sleep peacefully, but a log? <laughs> Sounds like I'm gonna have moss on my north side. But even if you did once sleep well, you may not be getting enough Z's during the current crisis. It's an anxious time. But good sleep is another safeguard that you have against this virus. It can boost your body's immune system and even help vaccines work more effectively. And feeling stressed out these days? Well, deep sleep, and we'll find out just what that is, can help rewire the anxious brain. And we know it's all very well to say you need to get a good night's sleep. It's much harder to do. We'll hear tips that may help. Plus, is anyone else having strange coronavirus-themed dreams? Wide awake for this discussion is Etty Ben-Simon. She's a postdoctoral fellow in the Center for Human Sleep Science at the University of California, Berkeley. One of the things that I think really interfere with getting proper sleep is the change in routine. So our body really works with an internal clock that it's synchronized to day and night. And we like to go to sleep at the same time and wake up at the same time to enable our body to synchronize with light and day. And what's happening during pandemics or anything that really disrupts our routine is that we start going to sleep a bit later, we wake up a bit later, and then the next day it varies, and there is a lot of irregularity in our sleep. And that could really disrupt the quality of sleep we're getting and the duration of sleep we're getting. Do we have real data showing that people's sleep is more disturbed these days than usual? We have evidence for both. We have evidence of people that are actually able to get more sleep because they have less commitment and work schedule is more relaxed. They don't have to commute. And then we have evidence of people that are more stressed about losing a job or about their health, and that can disrupt their sleep as well. Well, as a practical matter and also a personally interested matter, any tips for getting good sleep during the pandemic? I, I find that just worrying that I'm not going to be able to fall asleep at night keeps me up. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, it's a really vicious cycle that when we're anxious, our sleep is disturbed, and when our sleep is disturbed, we're anxious. I think one of the best tips I can give is to really try and maintain a regular routine, even though everything's so chaotic and uncertain uh, when it comes to going to bed, so going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time. Uh, try to find the earliest time that is comfortable for you to go to sleep when you feel tired and really stick to that time. Try to get at least 30 minutes of sunlight during the day. These are really important things that would help keep the clock synchronized and help our sleep. And, and what if I, you know, toss and turn, I look at the clock. I try not to do that, but I look at the clock and it's 3.30 in the morning. Should I just roll over and keep trying to fall asleep or, you know, should I get up and go make myself a sandwich? Yeah, the recommendation is actually not to stay in bed too long. So if you're tossing and turning for 20 minutes or more, leave the bed, go to another room in dim light, read something, write something, and only go to bed uh, when you're tired. And the reason we want to do that is that if we're too anxious around falling asleep and we stay in bed for too long, our brain starts associating the bed as a battlefield because it's really a place of stress instead of a place of rest. I mean, well, let's find out if this is all worth it in the uh, era of a pandemic. I think that most people realize that good sleep helps us. Maybe you could give us an overview of, of the ways that sleep, you know, good sleep, is actually beneficial. Sleep is the Swiss army knife of health. It really helps in every level of physiology in our brain and in our body. It boosts our immunity. It helps us stay creative. It helps us regulate our mood. It helps uh, keep the heart healthy. So really, in every level of our biology, sleep is beneficial. Okay, but with those coronavirus out there, just, you know, so eager to get into my body, 
Does good sleep actually help my immune system? Yeah, so we have evidence that good sleep uh, helps fight off disease. When we have poor sleep, we are more susceptible and more vulnerable to get infected. So, for instance, I can tell you about a study where they had people vaccinated. So in a vaccine, we try to teach the immune system about a new pathogen. And then some of the people were allowed to sleep and the other were asked to stay away for a whole night. And then a couple of weeks later, they tested the amount of antibodies that people had. And those that were not able to sleep right after the vaccine had 50% less antibodies than the ones that were able to sleep. So it tells us that during sleep, and specifically that sleep right after we're trying to teach the immune system a new pathogen, is really important for the system to learn and recognize new pathogens and create the necessary antibodies for them. Well, it sort of sounds like your body is just better at fighting off disease because you had the sleep. Yes, exactly. And it's also better at creating those little soldiers that we need to fight off disease. So this is kind of an interesting twist. I mean, we began this conversation talking about how the pandemic might be interfering with our sleep. And now we're talking about how, well, if we, you know, let it interfere with our sleep, it may worsen our response to the pandemic. So this is something that we should all be trying to to do. Yeah, I don't want people being stressed about sleep because that would make them less being able to fall asleep. But If you're able to really protect your sleep, it will protect you in return. I always like to say that. And I think that sleep is really an autopilot. All we have to do is get into bed, relax, and the brain takes it from there. Eddie, you surely have the answer to the big, big question. And that is, why do animals need sleep? I mean, why why do our brains need sleep? Why do we have to spend a third of our lives, you know, immobile, on a pile of springs. What's going on in our brain? (laughs) There's so many things that actually evolution has crammed into those eight hours that it's really impressive. The big question of why we sleep is still open and uh, I'm glad it's open because it's what I'm going to work on for the rest of my life. But in general, we see that the brain helps flush out toxins that have built up during the day. And that's mostly during deep sleep. But then there is also another stage of sleep when we are when we are actually conscious, and that's REM sleep, when most dreams occur. And in terms of what's happening in our body, one of the theories is that perhaps some of these processes that happen during sleep cannot happen while we are engaged with external challenges. So for instance, you cannot reline the fabric of your stomach while you're still digesting. So you have to stop digesting in order to repair all of that uh, lining of your gut. That's really interesting. It's like my car needs oil changes, but I but I can't have that done when it's going 60 miles an hour down the freeway. That would be very dangerous. So exactly. m- maybe it's the same thing going on here. Um, your team at Berkeley, Etty, and I believe you were the lead author on this research, discovered that the sleep most apt to calm an anxious brain is deep sleep. Now, I've never really understood that term, I mean, it sounds like when you're really, really asleep or, or maybe you just have a cheap mattress. But when you talk about deep sleep, <laughs> you know, what is deep sleep? I mean, from, you know, a scientific perspective. Deep sleep is the part of sleep where uh, it is uh, the hardest to wake us up. Our brain is showing a pattern of very slow and uh, high amplitude uh, waves. So if we look at brain activity, it's synchronized and really slow. Our heart rate and our blood pressure are at a minimum. So it's really a stage where our brain is the most asleep that you can be, let's say, uh, in a sense. And what we think is really beneficial in that stage of sleep in terms of anxiety and stress is that this is the part of sleep where the rest and digest part of the nervous system is really dominant. So when we're awake, the part of the nervous system that is mostly active is the one that challenges us to fight or flight. So really increases our heart rate and our blood pressure, sends blood to the muscles and energizes us to move forward. And the rest and digest part is exactly the opposite. It's the one that would calm us down and uh, replenish ourselves and everything uh, that's related to the immune response as well. So this mostly happens during deep sleep. 
Do we know how that works physiologically? I mean, you know, do we know what's going on in the brain? Do we ever know what's going on in the brain that's causing this link between deep sleep and reduced anxiety? Yes, we know that there are centers in the brain, especially in the prefrontal region, so right behind our eyebrows, that are very relevant for regulating emotions. And what we see is that the more deep sleep that we can get, the more activity we re-engage in that in that brain region. So the more we're able to regulate our emotion and bring that part of the brain online. And what's interesting about our study is that we saw that after just one night of sleep loss, that brain region, the prefrontal region, is taken offline. It's really not active anymore without sleep. So it's very sensitive to sleep loss, and it really comes back and restored after deep sleep. So for people who don't get enough sleep, what are they giving up other than Z's? I mean, what are the deleterious effects on their health? First of all, they're losing a lot of fun. I really love sleeping. But other than that, we see effects on cognition. So we're not able to concentrate. Uh, we're not able to make decisions. We also see a lot of effects on emotion. We're not able to regulate our mood. We also see effects on heart health. So people that don't get enough sleep or that have disrupted sleep are more likely to have cardiovascular disease down the line. And also, even if you just care about being able to exercise and perform athletically, we also see that for the muscles, it's really important to get sufficient and good quality amount of sleep to be able to perform better. I'm going to actually add more topics to this list when in a couple of years when I have my own lab. <laughs> Eddie, can we talk for a moment about dreams? People are reporting having coronavirus-themed dreams or just weirder-than-normal dreams. You know, it sounds a little straightforward that we would naturally have anxiety dreams about the virus or, or just weird dreams during unprecedented times. I mean, I find like I'm ha having more nightmares and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's natural to have more bad dreams or nightmares because anxiety levels are higher and stress is higher. But one thing that I also think affects how many dreams people report is just the fact that they're able to sleep a bit more. So REM, uh, the stage of REM, rapid eye movement, where we typically uh, dream, is longest towards the mornings, 6 a.m., 5 a.m. And if suddenly we have an extra hour of sleep because we don't have to wake up and commute and go to work, suddenly we have many more dreams that we're able to recall than uh, before the, the quarantine. So this could also be just our brain catching up on a lot of REM sleep that we were missing out during our regular routine. I believe there was a Harvard study recently that showed that vivid dreams about bug attacks kind of topped the list of COVID-19 dreams. Any idea why that would be? That has to do um, probably with what we digest during the day. So having to deal with uh, bug attacks, <laughs> having uh, anxiety related to infection. Personally, myself, I started having quarantine dreams. Even before I had an actual quarantine dream, I just noticed my dreams becoming more indoors because I spend so much time indoors. And, you know, it is the same brain. What we dream of in, in a lot of ways reflect what we live with the most. So if this is something that is occupying our mind, then it'll come out as a dream as well. Well, finally, Eddie, before I drift off here, when your friends <laughs> ask you, well, how much sleep should I get? Do you have an answer for them? I say seven to nine for healthy adults, and uh, most of my friends are healthy adults. Um, but I really encourage people to experiment and find the optimum sweet spot for them. And I think it's really not that hard. And actually, the pandemic is a perfect time to do it. So if the circumstances allow, you don't have to wake up early at a certain time. Just don't use an alarm clock and really let your body tell you how much sleep you need. It's really that easy. Eddie Ben-Simon, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. Eddie Ben-Simon is a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Human Sleep Science at the University of California, Berkeley. Well, Seth, going backwards, sleep, skin, soap, what's the big picture here? Well, I think that it's interesting, at least to me, that long before our ancestors would even have been able to conceive of the possibility of medication, evolution, and that's both biological and cultural evolution, would favor developments that would help them survive disease, right? 
body armor against microscopic invaders? That's one, of course. (laughs) I've never thought of my skin as body armor, but that's right, because it has all these protective qualities. Yeah, it's chain mail against the bad guys. And the invention of soap, I mean, that was cultural. But what's interesting there is that its utility was recognized long, long before anyone had the slightest idea either of how it worked or what it was even working against. Have you ever scrubbed any dishes with uh, ash, using ash from the fireplace, uh, like they did back then? <laughs> Not that I can recall. No, I probably would have noticed if somehow, you know, it was a big bag of ash in the kitchen you know, labeled, you know, dishwashing ash. I, I, no. <laughs> and then, of course, the big one is sleep. And what we heard is that that is an important investment, those eight hours of unconsciousness. Yeah, I I thought that was interesting that, you know, uh, you you can't do these repair jobs if you're awake and have to worry about a predator or anything like that. So we go to sleep and, you know, it all happens. So it sounds like nature and accident have intertwined in many ways to give us these very basic lines of defense. Well, we've said this before, but there's a lot of misinformation out there about this outbreak. And if you come across cures or statistics that don't seem right, well, check them out. And you can check them out at your local public health services website or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. We could not do this show without senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thank you to them for their help and for continuing to work on the show from their homes. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates, among other things, the mechanisms of biology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and also a big thanks to our listeners. You've been listening to an episode of Big Picture Science called Soap, Skin, Sleep. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, including the episodes that are devoted to the coronavirus, you'll find all of that in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you'll find links there as well to the guests you've heard and the hand-washing video featuring Sarah Derwin. Now uh, grab some soap and wash off those lipids. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.